right. Today, I want to begin by reminding us of the context of 12 through 16 in chapter 2. That's where we're at today. But it's been a couple weeks since we've looked at 2 Corinthians. And so Paul has been pleading his case with the Corinthians regarding his change of plans. You might remember uh, Paul was planning to go see the Corinthians. Things changed. The Corinthians got upset with Paul that he didn't show up when he said he was going to show up. And so Paul has been defending that change of plans. He says in previous uh, passages, hey, he wanted to give them some time and him some time to heal because the last time he showed up, it was pretty painful. It was one of those confrontations that did not go so well. He even has written them another letter prior to this one that was kind of painful too. And so Paul wanted to give some space to them. He also says that he wanted to test their obedience. He wanted to give them some time to be obedient to what he had instructed them to do in particular. And I think this was our last text we looked at. There was one guy who was leading the charge in the church that was against Paul. And Paul wanted them to discipline that person. But then he wrote to them even previously that we looked at in the passage, that person had repented and he wanted them to forgive him. He wanted that man to be restored back into the fellowship of the church, and so he was testing their obedience. And so today we're going to begin with his final point in relation to, to defending himself, why he didn't show up. And uh, this actually transitions us into what many consider the heart of the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 2 all the way through chapter 7. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but without further introduction, if you'd follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 2, I'm going to start there in verse 12. We'll read all the way down through Verse 17, it says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I took leave of them, and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, it's a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, it's a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. All that it is to us. The truth uh, that is there. God, the hope that it brings us. The joy that it brings us. The instruction that it gives us as well. And Lord, I know we all come from, from a variety of, of weeks and even the weekend. For some, it's been extremely busy. For others, it's been filled with just sorrow and grief. So we come today and we need you to work in our lives. And we're asking that you would work through your word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins here by addressing the open door that the Lord, he says, opened for him. Verses 12 through 13. I'm just going to quickly summarize what's going on in these verses. Paul has traveled from Ephesus where he's been all the way up north to Troas. He had the intention of there preaching the gospel. And while he was there, God blessed. It says the door was open. Things were going well for him in Troas. 
Yet at the same time, the second thing that we see in these opening verses is his spirit is restless. Because Paul is waiting to hear from Titus. Titus had gone to Corinth while Paul went to Troas. And Paul was waiting in Troas for Titus to come and Titus to give him an update. How are the Corinthians doing? He's brokenhearted for these people. And he wants to know how are they doing? How are they responding to the truth? Are we in a good relationship now or are we still at odds? And so Paul is restless in his time in Troas wondering how things are going, waiting for Titus. He couldn't wait any longer. He travels on from Troas to the region of Macedonia. I'd encourage you, you can take out your your maps in the back of your Bible or look this up later so you can kind of see the trajectory as Paul makes his way north. Two things I want to note out of these things. God was leading in Paul's movement. And that's what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand, is that God is the one who's directing him to leave Ephesus and to go to Troas. He noticed, he mentions this as a door that was opened for me in the Lord. He recognizes the hand of God in his leading from Ephesus to Troas. And so thus Paul pulls out really the ultimate excuse to give to the Corinthians. Hey, I didn't show up because... God had other plans. God sent me in another direction. The second thing I want you to notice, though, is Paul's anguish here. He's struggling as he's awaiting the news of what's going on in Corinth from Titus. And I find it compelling to consider that even while God was blessing the gospel efforts there in Troas, things are going well from Paul's perspective. Paul is also grieving over the Corinthians. There's more than one emotion that's going on in the heart of Paul during this time, and that's ministry, folks. That's what discipleship is. We're talking about the heart of discipleship, and this encapsulates it well. As you leave a home where maybe a family member uh, just put their trust in Christ, and, and and you see that hope, you get a phone call that another family you know just had a child killed in a car accident. And we move from these highs in life to these lows or, or you walk out of a hospital room and uh, you, you, you've just been there rejoicing with a family who just had a baby and you walk down the hall and you, you join a family in prayer who just lost a loved one. These are the highs and these are the lows of ministry. When we're dealing with souls, things are complex. Life and death, emotions are always high. The stakes couldn't be higher. Just a a, a couple of weeks ago, I got a phone call from Chuck, and it was a Thursday night. He was working nights. He's working this weekend and nights this week, and uh, he he was heading out to work on Thursday night. Storms had messed up the terminal, and so he had to go out there and reset some things, and as he was driving out, because the computer had already alerted and things were going on, in the middle of the night, he got a phone call from a driver, one of the guys that was there to fill up with fuel, his name was Jerry, and said, Chuck, just want to let you know I'm waiting here. Things are messed up. Chuck said, hey, I'll be there. I'm on my way 15, 20 minutes. Chuck pulls up. He sees somebody flashing a flashlight. He pulls in, comes around. He gets out of his truck, and there's a guy screaming at him saying, hey, Jerry is down in the rack. Chuck grabs the defibrillator out of the office, runs, and he said, He hasn't done this stuff in 30 years since he was in the Air Force, but it just came back. He hooks the defibrillator up, uh, begins to shock, begins compressions. A deputy eventually shows up, begins to help with compressions. Paramedics come, but Jerry was gone. That's Thursday night, Friday morning, really. Saturday, Chuck and Tori put on a praise service here. 
All that weekend, Chuck has been preparing for what will happen Sunday with the Iwana celebration that we had just a couple weeks ago. It's just the highs and the lows of life. Experiencing death in a moment and then turning around and rejoicing in kids who are memorizing God's word and their accomplishments. This is life and this is what Paul is uh, trying to convey is discipleship and helping others in their relationship with Jesus. Well, what happens next in the text is Paul, he goes off road a little bit. He, he begins to talk about gospel ministry and the effective gospel ministry. And so this section that he moves into goes all the way. I just want to give you a little bit of a bird's eye view all the way to chapter seven, verse four. And we know that, and we know he goes off-road because in chapter 7, verse 5, he starts talking about Titus and Macedonia again. He picks up where he leaves off right here in verse 13, and he starts talking about them again. And so this next section that we're opening the door into and moving into, we're talking about the authentic ministry. Some of it's hotly debated, but I want to start by talking about parades. Parades. What, what, what do you think of when you think of a parade? What comes to your mind? You can just start throwing some things out. Candy. <laughs> Candy. <clears throat> Thank you, Tori. Good, good start. <laughs> Love that candy. Yeah, somebody over here had said something. Marching bands. Marching bands. Yeah, what else? Pride. Pride. Okay, good. Yes. Usually built around that. What else? Somebody say floats. Yeah, floats. That's a interesting concept that we've had. Anything else come to mind when you think of parades? Classic cars. We have a lot of those when they come through town. Yeah. Big trucks. Uh, not letting my children get run over. That's what I think about now in parades because the candy's going and kids are darting and I'm just like, it's a nightmare of a situation. But parades are interesting things. They run deep into human history. That's not necessarily an American concept, but they're primarily celebrations, opportunities uh, for us to show honor to people who would deserve honor, to bring awareness to issues. Think of a Christmas parade. It's about celebrating that holiday or Thanksgiving, about celebrating the holiday of Thanksgiving. But then you can flip it to like a Veterans Day. What's a Veterans Day parade about? It's about honoring veterans. It's about honoring those to whom honor is due. Uh, you have parades like the March for Life, uh, March for Life is about bringing uh, awareness to the issues of abortion and the, the pro-life cause. And we have all sorts of things that can come to mind when we think of parades. As an adult, I primarily go to parades to watch my kids march in the band. Candy can be an extra benefit along the way there. As a child, I went to those parades to be the person marching in the band. Uh, and so those are my experiences with parades. But typically there's a theme. There's something maybe uh, like pride. There's something that they're, they're trying to draw people's attention to. And there's usually in a parade a particular person that's designated as the Grand Marshal. Christmas time, sometimes that's Santa Claus. Uh, Veterans Day parades, it's usually a veteran that they want to honor. And that person is the Grand Marshal of the parade. But as I mentioned, parades aren't just a modern practice. The Romans were putting on some pretty spectacular parades during the Roman Empire. Before Christ's life, after Christ's life, it was a common practice. In fact, one of those parades is what Paul is referencing in verses 14, 15, and 16. It's called the triumphant 
parade. And that, that opens the door for us into this next section that we're going to be looking at. The word Paul chooses to use in verse 14, triumph or, or triumphal procession, as we'll say in some of your translations, it clues us in to this historical and cultural practice of the Romans. See, when we go to God's word, it's important that we go to God's word and we understand the grammar so that we understand what it means. We need to understand like the, the genre, the literature that's being uh, written in the form that it's there. But we also need to understand the historic evidence behind it. But Paul isn't writing, in a sense, to us presently sitting here today. He's writing this letter to people who lived in the Roman Empire. And so when they saw this word, this triumphal procession, they knew immediately what Paul was referencing that went on around them in the Roman Empire. When a military leader was victorious over an enemy, they would often hold a parade in honor of that particular general. And they would come through different towns and they would honor this individual. One author likens it to, you know, maybe a Super Bowl parade that we would hold or in honor of the hometown champions if Republic won something statewide or Clever won something statewide. I know that doesn't seem to happen as often as we would like around here. Uh, that, that we would recognize and have a parade to honor those people. Well, leading that parade in the Roman world would often be uh, pictures depicting the battle. There'd be boards that would have the names listed of those defeated. These are kind of the floats that we have in our parade that would move down the streets and people would cheer and they would see the story of the battle unfold. Trumpeteers and vocalists would sing songs that were written about the victory. These are the, the bands that would proceed in the parade. Others would carry through the streets the spoils that they gained from that particular victory, the, the gold and the precious stones, and they would display them as they marched their way down the streets. In typical Roman fashion, chained enemies would also be marched down the streets, and they would stop at certain points and even execute some of these enemies as a display of their victory over them. And then there was the general the one who was being honored. He would be riding typically on a two-wheeled chariot that was decked out and pulled by four horses, laurel branches, bells, all of the things that would go along with that. Decked out in clothes of victory, face painted red to represent the god Jupiter. And in front of him would be incense bearers. Uh, they, they would be filling the air with the incense of victory. Uh, that, that smell would go with the people and they would remember when they smelled that smell again, the victory that was brought. And then often bringing up the rear of the parade would be those Romans who had been liberated from their enemies. Those who had been freed by this general's victory, those citizens of the Roman Empire, those who owed their life to this victorious general. This was a Roman triumphal procession parade. There's a lot more that could be said about these types of parades. These are depicted in all sorts of artifacts and in columns and pottery and uh, even a lot of writing that you could go back and you could study the architectural history of these things. Feel free to do your own research, but uh, we get the point today. But now that we understand the metaphor, what does Paul mean by using it? What is it that Paul wants us to understand? What is the point that he's making? Well, this is where things heat up a little bit because there's significant debate 
regarding Paul's intentions in bringing this metaphor to the table. First things first, everyone seems to agree that the triumphal victor that that Paul is speaking of is Jesus. Jesus is the one who has brought victory. Many interpreters, though, they view Paul placing himself in the position of the defeated one. Paul is one of those who has been defeated, those being led to their execution, and this, this interpretation seems to fit the whole suffering and dying motif that we find in 2 Corinthians. Paul talks a lot about suffering and dying, but on the other hand, others suggest that Paul is placing himself in the position of the victor, specifically as, as one of those who would bear incense in honor of the triumphal victor Jesus. Now, I understand why many consider Paul as the one defeated. His his testimony that he gives on the Damascus Road is one of what? Absolute defeat. As Jesus appears to him, he is absolutely humbled and suffering. And even even the context that we find here, a few verses later, look over with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. I just want to read to you what we find coming up in this letter. He says, we're afflicted in every way but we're not crushed, we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair, persecuted, but we're not forsaken, struck down, but we're not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. And so death is at work in us but life in you. Paul speaks of his dying, but I'm not convinced by those arguments because when I consider verses 15 and 16, the whole aroma aspect that he begins to speak about of the parade, I'm compelled to believe that Paul means to place himself in the metaphor, not as one who is defeated, but as one who was liberated and one who now has the job of spreading the aroma that announces the triumphant victory of Christ. Now, you may disagree with me. We can fight behind the church later. Uh, Go to fists if you want to. Uh, I don't don't care. This is just where I landed. There's a lot of of uh, conflict and disagreement on this issue. But but let me get to this. So, So what of Jesus' victory then? So verse 14 begins, Paul offers thanks to God. He says, who through Christ leads us in this triumphal procession? In Christ and because of Christ, we're victors. We have victory in Jesus, that great hymn that we often sing. There's victory in Christ. On our behalf, as our substitute, Jesus defeats the power of sin. On our behalf and as our substitute, Jesus defeats death itself. We sang about that in a couple of different songs this morning. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has done what no man could ever do. And this is why Paul says, thanks be to God. All glory to him. This is why we gather every week and we sing and we pray and we praise and we preach. We're saying what? Thanks be to God. Every week we gather for that purpose because he is the one who has given us victory. People may say, hey, why do you go to church? To give thanks to God for the victory that I have. I go week after week for that purpose. But Paul moves from the triumph of Jesus to talking about our responsibility then to spread the fragrance of him to others. 
Notice again verse 14. He says, and through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul is saying, it's my job to share the aroma of Christ's victory with others. By the way, we'll make the point in a moment that it's also our job to spread the aroma of Christ's victory. And so so what does Paul mean when he says there, we are the aroma of Christ? Listen, Paul's life was so intertwined with his ministry that he viewed every action that he made as some sort of proclamation of Jesus and his victory. We tend to think of our lives as being compartmentalized. I've got the the church me, the the Jesus me, and then I've got the the family me and the work me, and we, we tend to compartmentalize life in those different ways. But that should not be the case with our faith. Christ and our commission to share him with others should should waft into every area of our life. Beyond this, our lives should prove, should prove the triumphant victory of Jesus. People should look at us and they should see light. People should be able to taste us and they should taste salt. People should smell us and they should smell the aroma of Jesus. There's something different about those people. Why are they different? It's because of Jesus. In the metaphor, Paul views himself, I believe, as one marching right in front of the triumphant Jesus, bearing the aroma of Christ for others to experience, for others to smell. And as Paul lives out the gospel and as he preaches the gospel to others, he's sharing that aroma. He's sharing who Christ is. He's not sharing who Paul is. He's sharing who Christ is. I don't want to share who Josh is. I want to share who Christ is by the way that I live my life. But it's interesting, the aroma of Christ that Paul shares, he goes on and he says, you know, it's pleasing to some, but it's unbearable to others. I don't like coffee very much. Most of you know that. I've been pretty forward on that. You'll offer me a cup of coffee and I run away in disgust. I don't, I don't even, there, there's, a, there's an occasion where I like the smell of coffee. It has to be something just right, but most of the time, even the smell of coffee, I just, I don't understand you people. So for some of you, you smell that and it's, it's life-affirming. For me, it's kind of a pungent smell. And there's a lot of other things that I would rather smell than coffee. Paul here in verse 15 writes that, that both those who are being saved, delivered, and those who are perishing, they smell what Paul is saying about Jesus. Everybody smells this aroma that Paul is spreading. But as he continues in verse 16, the perishing only smell death. And the saved only smell life. Just as there was some in that Roman procession and that parade that as they smelled that aroma of victory, for them it was sweet because they had been deliberated, uh, they had been liberated. For others, that smell only reminded them of the death that was coming because they had been defeated. Their execution had been scheduled. The same smell results in two different outcomes and it boils down to this. 
What do you believe about Jesus? What is your position on him? If you believe that he's the savior you need, then the gospel message is sweet. And the gospel message is life-affirming to you. But if you believe you are sufficient and you don't need a savior, you're, you're good enough. You've got more good than bad in your life. If that's your position, then the gospel's message is, is pungent. And Paul says it will be death to you. But verse 16 doesn't end there. He goes on and he asks this particular question. Who is sufficient for these things? Meaning, who's qualified for this task then? Who can do this with sufficiency? That question and the remaining context, we're going to hit the pause button. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks. But today's verse has given us a sufficient amount of things to consider. James, James encourages us, hey, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so every week we try to look at what we've, we've learned, what are the truths, and we try to see what does it mean to be a doer of the word that we're looking at. What are the implications? And let me start where we just left off. What do you believe about Jesus? Is the gospel message of Jesus sweet to you? Or is it pungent? Is the gospel life-giving to you or is it death-affirming to you? Does it draw you in for more? I want, I want more of that. Or does it drive you away? That is the question that matters most in life for all of us. What will we do with Jesus? We see this played out in the Gospels in various people's lives as they interact with Jesus, don't we? Some, some were, were drawn to Jesus. They couldn't get enough of Jesus, and then others, they, they rejected him. They, they couldn't get rid of him fast enough. What was the difference? What made the difference in the hearts of those who, who wanted more of Christ and those who, who wanted to get rid of him? It was humility that made the difference. The ones who wanted to get rid of Christ were driven by their pride. They were the ones who would stand and say, God, thank you that I'm not like these other people. And I fast and I do all the things that I'm supposed to do and I, I check all the boxes. But the humble who were attracted to Jesus, they were the ones who couldn't even lift their eyes to heaven and they would beat their chests and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Humility. Jesus said, I've come as a physician for those who are sick, but those who don't believe themselves to be sick, they don't need a physician. But the ones who recognize there's something wrong with me. There's things that need to be fixed. I shouldn't be this angry. I shouldn't deal with this bitterness. I shouldn't worry so much. There's, there's something wrong with me. I need a savior to fix what's broken. Today and every day, we must confess our inadequacies and our need for a Savior. We need more of Jesus. This is what it means to live a gospel-centered day. What will you do with Jesus today? 
What will you do with him tomorrow? Are you going to say, get that smell out of my face? Or, oh, I want more of that. Well, for the Christians, for those of you who are followers of Jesus here today, are you speaking the aroma of Christ with your life? Does your life share the sweetness of Jesus with others? Are you speaking the aroma of Christ with your words? Are you discipling other people and helping them to, to note the goodness and the kindness and the sweetness of Jesus? Do you smell like you've been around Jesus? Do others sense the, the fruit of Jesus in your life? Are you one who is quick to show grace and to forgive others? Are you one who lives according to the flesh and you hold on to bitterness and anger? Are you patient with others? There's so much more that we could say about the sweetness of Jesus and his character. Finally, let me ask you this. Are you with words sharing Jesus with others? Are you with your words Declaring the triumphal victory of Jesus to your, your friends and your family and your neighbors and your co-workers. I'm talking about evangelism. When, when others share their, their discomfort, when they share their, their pain and the grief that they're experiencing because they live in the broken world you live in. Do you tell them about the triumphant Jesus? Do you meet their pain with hope? When others share their fear and their anger, their struggles with addiction, do you tell them about the triumphant Jesus? When others are burdened with the guilt of their own sin, do you tell them about the triumphant Jesus who offers forgiveness? We need to speak the aroma of Christ. We need to share it with others so that they know there's victory in Him. I'm also talking about discipleship with other believers as well, moving beyond evangelism. Do we share the hope of Jesus with those who are struggling in our own church? Man, we ended an incredible book study just in April and everybody ended. Man, we need to be engaged in each other's lives. We need to be confessing our sin. We need to be having real, genuine conversations. Is that continuing for you or are you dropping the ball? Get back to that. Engage in the lives of others. Spread the glorious aroma of Jesus. I thought about it this way as we think about spreading that aroma. Every, every Sunday morning we come together, it's like, a, it's like a parade, isn't it? We come together as a church and we're celebrating the triumph of Jesus. We do it with music. We do it with words reminding ourselves of his victory. We come together to celebrate. What a sweet time we have. One more thing that I want to just encourage you to consider. Today, give thanks for others who have shared the aroma of Jesus with you. We all look back in our lives and we, we know those people. We know those Sunday school teachers. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was your parents. Yesterday, uh, we had the opportunity to celebrate one of my grandpa's 90th birthday. 
And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and there were so many different people in the room. My, my parents being some of them, they shared the sweet aroma of Jesus with me growing up. We sat at the table with my other set of grandparents who were nearly 90 themselves, and I, I sat next to my grandpa who taught Sunday school for decades, my grandma who taught Sunday school for kids for decades, and shared the sweet aroma of Jesus with me through my upbringing. Still today, sharing that sweet aroma of Christ and the hope that they have beyond this life. Give thanks for those people. Give thanks for those people who have invested in you and then invest in the next generation. Don't stop discipling. They discipled you. They were instrumental in your life. You now share that sweet aroma with the generation that is continuing and proceeding. I'm going to ask you to bow with me for just a moment. I want to give you some time to pray. Maybe your prayer today is, I'm tired of pushing Jesus away. I want the sweetness of who he is. This is your opportunity to pray. If you have questions, if you're struggling and you need someone to pray with you today, this is a great opportunity for you. You can come forward while heads are bowed. We can take you to another room, pray with you, open up God's word, share his hope with you. But I know for myself and I think for many of us who are in this room, the conviction is I need, I need more of that sweetness of Jesus in my own heart and I need to share that more with others. I need to be more active in, in sharing with the way that I live and with the words that I speak of the triumphal victory of Jesus. I'll give you a moment to pray. We're going to transition after this into a baptism, and so I'll, I'll draw your attention. But just in this quiet, I encourage you to just spend some time in prayer.